Hello and welcome to episode four of the Bellzona podcast, your go-to podcast for all things coating and engineering. I'm Richard Bywater, Specification Development Engineer for Bellzona Polymerics, uh, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to the fourth instalment of the Bellzona podcast. In our last episode, we were joined by my colleague Jason Horn, our R&D manager here at Bellzona Global HQ in Harrogate. Now, Jason gave us a fantastic insight into Bellzona's R&D department, discussing how the department for many years now have been turning science into solutions for many different types of industrial maintenance problem, uh, as well as giving us a sneak peek into some of Bellzona's future product plans. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing uh, something a little bit different. Uh, We're going to be going through a type of industrial repair that many of you may not be familiar with. So mechanical damage, erosion and corrosion are some of the main maintenance problems that pipe work and pipelines can experience. There are several ways in which these problems can be solved, including welding and bonding, but today we're going to focus mostly on another method, composite wrap systems and especially compliant composite wraps. So to discuss this topic today, I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined by a number of guests. So to start with, uh, and to take us through the basic principles, I would like to introduce one of my colleagues, uh, Senior Business Development Engineer for Belzona here in Harrogate, Mr. Thomas Martin. Tom, how are you doing? Very good, thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. Absolute pleasure, as always. I've, uh, have you been keeping track of, of the podcast? You, have you listened to, to what we've done so far? Yeah, I think uh, it's been fantastic so far and I particularly uh, found the, the first episode very interesting. Um, having been here in Belzona for about five years myself, obviously I know uh, a lot about the company and the history, yeah. but um, yeah, it was really interesting to hear from our CEO, uh, Joel, uh, to find out more, um, more information and I really enjoyed that episode. Great. Oh, well, it's, it's always lovely to have positive feedback. So uh, th- thank you very much for that. Um, so, I mean, speaking of, of, of kind of uh, uh, yourself, um, thanks, for, thanks for being involved. You're quite busy yourself at the moment. I understand, obviously, we, we're quite close colleagues uh, working in the same office, uh, juggling a, a new house and a new dog at the moment. So <laughs> thank you very much for fitting us into your busy oh, schedule. Absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah, I'm always busy, but uh, can always find time for you, Richard. Excellent. Okay. So... Um, if we start off with you, you've touched on it briefly uh, just there, but uh, could, could you tell the audience uh, a little bit about your, your role in Belzona and, and kind of what that entails? Yeah, of course. Um, so I joined Belzona around five years ago uh, in the technical service department. Um, at that time, I was working in the Harrogate office um, as I am today. Uh, since then, I've, I've actually lived in Thailand and worked in our Asia Pacific office for two years. Uh, and that's when I started moving into a more business development role. Uh, eventually came back to Harrogate and now I'm working with our distributor network in Europe and Africa. Excellent. Okay, so uh, so today's kind of topic that we're going to touch on, uh, composite wrap systems. It, this is a system that, that you are very, very familiar with. Uh, you're, you're heavily qualified to, to discuss. You've, you've, you've done it all over the world. What qualifications, what experience have you got under your belt, if you like, uh, with this kind of system? Well, um, as well as being a certified trainer, designer and applicator and supervisor for the Bell Zona Suprap system, 
Uh, I was actually quite heavily involved in the in the early stages of the uh, qualification testing for the SuperApp 2 system, um, composite wrap system uh, that we brought in uh, around the time I was joining the company actually and that was one of my early early projects was uh, doing some of the hydrostatic testing and some of the testing required uh, to comply with some of the standards. Fantastic. Which which we will uh, we, we're going to go through in a little bit more detail uh, uh, as we kind of go through the the, the basic principles, but uh, no, fantastic. Sounds like you're you're the perfect person to, uh, to 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 guide us through this topic. So, so let's start at, at the most basic level, then, Tom. Uh, what is a composite wrap, and um, on on what are composite wraps typically used for? Yeah, so a com- composite wraps are something that Bell's owner has um, has been doing for for decades. Um, the word composite essentially means the use of uh, a system of materials, more than one material uh, applied uh, to to repair or improve um, uh, a piece of equipment. So typically when we're talking about composite wraps, we're gonna be looking at pipelines. Um, okay. uh, in, in in the context of Belzona, what that means is a, usually a reinforcement sheet uh, used with uh, a resin or a paste grade material um, and that's then used to wet out uh, the reinforcement sheet and together they wrap around the pipe and uh, once it's cured it's like a, a reinforcing corrosion protection system uh, on the pipe for leaks for okay. corrosion damage or where you have thin wall defects or, or even through wall defects on pipeline systems. Okay, so so what are the, uh, the the alternative options to to using a composite wrap? What what would the audience potentially be seeing as a, a traditional repair for the, for the kind of stuff that composite wraps will be used for? Yeah, so um, historically and and to this day, uh, one one very common way of repairing uh, any kind of equipment, but including pipelines and tanks, uh, would be by welding what's called a doubler plate. Okay. Uh, so where you have a, a defect for example, on a pipeline, um, and you need to reinforce that or repair that defect. Um, It's very, very uh, tried and tested to take a sheet of of steel or metal that's uh, similar or the same to the substrate uh, and weld it over the defect uh, to add strength back into the the system. Okay, and with welding, it's uh, everything's coded in terms of that that repairing standards, isn't it? Yeah, so um, there's a lot, there's obviously uh, weld codes and standards uh, that are well established in industry um, for repairing equipment, especially pressurized equipment. Um, and because that's all coded and standardized, it's, it's uh, broadly usable in pretty much any situation. And that's why uh, asset owners like to like to use that as a, as a method of repair. Okay, so there are certain situations, or would you say there's certain situations, however, where something like a composite wrap would be advantageous against the, uh, let's say, the alternative of, of welding? Well, yeah, I think this, this goes back to um, the opportunity that Bell's owner saw many years ago when we, when we were first entering uh, markets where there's a lot of pressurized systems. Um, one of the major drawbacks that you find with welding is, um, obviously, it's hot work. It requires hot work in order to be implemented. Um, as you can imagine, in many situations, especially if we have flammable uh, substances, this can be very problematic. Lines need to be shut down. Areas need to be made safe for hot work. Um, so Belzona saw this opportunity um, and developed the 
composite wrapping systems, originally using our paste grade materials and, uh, and a reinforcement sheet, um, which could be used instead of welding in some cases and avoid the need for hot work. Yeah, so, so it's a cold applied alternative to, to, to welding in effect. Yeah, that's correct. So how has the, the development of these composite wraps evolved through the years and kind of where did it all, all begin? Yeah, so when composite wraps first came and composite repairs first came to the market as, a, as an alternative to welding, um, the, unlike welding, there was no standards, no codes, uh, and no kind of unified way uh, that could be recognized by industry to um, to uh, view these wraps into in context of the of, say the pressure of the pipeline, for example, or the uh, the safety rating of the pipeline. Yeah. Uh, therefore, historically, they've actually been used more for low level repairs. Yeah. Um, low pressure pipelines, non safety critical pipelines, um, and those were and, and often viewed as temporary repairs as opposed to permanent long term repairs as well. Okay. Okay. So uh, so so how has this kind of how has this view changed then? Yeah, so that's where the, the modern um, composite wrap systems come in. So uh, a number of years ago, uh, in sort of around 2000 and I think 2007, when the standards first started to be developed and introduced, um, industry was looking at a way due to the benefits of the composite wraps uh, to, to standardize these uh, and to make it usable um, for more lines, more pipelines and more equipment, especially the higher pressure uh, and safety critical lines. And that's where the, uh, the the standards first came in and manufacturers, including Bellzona, then reacted to this and started to develop um, higher, more engineered systems uh, that could be used in a wider range of situations and and be viewed by industry as, as structurally um more significant than they had been before and comparable in welding in a lot of ways. And is this what you think led Belzona to, to develop the, the, the Belzona wrap system, Belzona Super Wrap and, and Super Wrap 2? Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, the the standards that came in, uh, ISO 24817 and, and ASME PCC2, uh, Belzona was, was aware of these during the development and once they came to market, we developed a system uh, called SuperApp, um, which was made in line with, with those standards and uh, that was on the market for a number of years. Um, and as time progressed, uh, new technologies became available and we've since um, updated to the SuperApp 2 system. So uh, the, the solutions you just mentioned, Belzona SuperApp and Belzona SuperApp 2, uh, am I right in saying that these can be used as uh, what's deemed as compliant repairs? Yeah, so um, a compliant repair is essentially a repair that's done in accordance with, with those standards. Okay. And uh, what, we, what we at Bellzona have done, um, uh, firstly, is a lot of pre-qualification testing on the SuperApp 2 system and the SuperApp system before that, which allows us to comply with those standards. And then the way we go about individual repairs is... Um, we follow a methodology um, of calculations outlined by the standards for that specific situation. So that's kind of where it's different from the, the traditional composite repair okay. uh, that was um, not engineered, not calculated, uh, and was seen as more of a temporary repair. Uh, but with these uh, compliance systems, 
we're actually able to take the pressure of the pipe, the defect size, the depth of the pitting, um, the temperature, all into account, run it through a system of calculations, and then come out with a design for that repair, which is specific for that application. And what this allows us to do is actually design a repair that can be uh, verified for service up to 20 years service life. So you've mentioned the, the design of, of the wrap there. Um, are there specific criteria for uh, who can make these designs, but also uh, who can apply the product? Yeah, so that's another part of the, of the standardization. Um, I'll link it back to when we spoke a little bit about welding. Uh, obviously, anybody who applies a weld will have to do it in accordance with certain um, practices, and that person should be sufficiently trained uh, to, to do that repair. And it's the same thing with the, uh, the composite wrap systems. The standards do dictate that we, um, we should train the people who apply the product uh, to ensure a high standard of application. Uh, and also the design uh, process is, is closely controlled by Bell's owner. Uh, either we do it ourselves with our in-house engineering team or we have uh, some of our distributors who have been trained um, to, to do the designs themselves as well. Okay, so um, so if I was someone sat here uh, interested in, in becoming certified, becoming a, a, a verified applicator, if you like, um, how would I go about doing this? Is it an easy process? Well, uh, no, I'd, I'd say it's, it's not an easy process. <laughs> okay. um, it's, it, we do run a, a training course here in, in Harrogate and in our other um, offices around the world and where we train um, people to, to be able to apply the Beltona SuperApp 2 yeah. system. Um, and that is, that is it's not an attendance-only course. It's, uh, it's, there is a pass-fail criteria on that, and it's quite challenging to pass. And the reason it's challenging to pass is because, of course, we as a manufacturer want to ensure the highest standards of application. Um, ideally, anybody who did come on the course would already uh, as a prerequisite, have um, lots of experience with Belzona uh, products and materials, uh, and and therefore be um, in a good position to to pass that course um, and have a good understanding of the quality assurance and quality um, procedures that we put in place for for other types of Belzona systems. Um, the way we aim to approach the market is actually through our distributor network, and they will already have the personnel and application partners who they work with who are very experienced with Bell's owner mm -hmm. and therefore they can deliver um, that as a, as a supply and apply solution locally in the market. Okay, so hypothetically, say uh, say, say you are a, a verified designer, you're, you've got a verified and certified applicator, would you be able to just take us through the, the basics in terms of uh, application and, and design considerations that go into producing a, a compliant wrap system? Yeah, yeah, so I, I'll talk you through um, the, the basic steps uh, in, in the process. Uh, so essentially, um, like I mentioned earlier, every application is, is done on a, a one by one basis. So there's no one size fits all. Uh, yeah. So the first step of any, any repair, uh, compliant repair would be to assess um, assess the, the situation, the specific situation. Yeah. Uh, and you do that by filling in um, an ASR, application survey report, uh, which Bell's owner um, have a, as a standard document. And that would involve finding out key details about the about the equipment. So the uh, the dimensions, um, the 
temperature, operating temperature, pressure, uh, any chemicals that are present in the pipeline, and the, as well as uh, details of the defect yeah. uh, and other practical considerations. You would then submit that to Bell's owner and we would assess um, the information, carry out a design process in-house or through one of our certified uh, designers. We would run a number of calculations, take into account any practical considerations and produce a design and uh, a method statement to carry out that repair. And that design would essentially be how many layers of wraps do you need and what's the length along the pipeline that you need to apply this wrap. Um, Yes, and, and then of course, once once the design is, is carried out and it's accepted by by the customer or the uh, the asset owner, it's then uh, up to a certified applicator to carry out that repair, uh, take all of the quality assurance um, uh, measurements and readings during the application, make uh, make any uh, documenting that's all the documenting that's necessary. Um, and submit that back to Bell's owner. And once we've reviewed uh, the quality assurance and quality control documentation, and we're happy that the repair has been carried out to our specification, we would then issue um, a, a certificate of approval for that for that application. Okay. Fantastic. So, so all of these steps, all of these uh, these stages, are effectively leading to kind of guarantee of, of performance for a, a set amount of time as per kind of what's required on a case-by-case -case basis yeah so um yeah so essentially it's uh it's it's backed up then by the by the standard that it's designed in accordance with as we said either iso 24817 or asmi uh pcc-2 fantastic okay tom well what type of, of, of equipment, I know we've mentioned pipelines and, and pipe work, uh, what type of equipment and, and industries, from your experience, do you see this type of repair being, being done in? Yeah, well, I think the, the major driving factor was initially the um, oil and gas uh, downstream and petrochemical industries, um, where they do have a lot of these uh, safety critical and pressurized systems. Um, and obviously with a lot of flammable uh, fluids and chemicals in those areas as well, and the expensive cost of shutdown, um, that's where the real driver to move away from welding towards cold applied systems came from. And that's where, of course, um, we've seen uh, the most uh, demand. Um, Is it just pipelines or are there other uh, bits of equipment that, that this type of repair can be targeted at? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's a good question. Um, so originally, yes, it was designed for, for primarily for pipelines, um, but actually within the, in the, the standards that we've mentioned, uh, there is provision to, to do patch repairs on other equipment like tanks, storage okay. tanks, or even uh, pressurized vessels. Yeah. And that's something that, uh, that we, we have, um, we've tested for and we've adapted our system to be able to do uh, so we can actually offer a patch repair on on tanks and uh, and vessels as well as uh, as a as a rat on a pipeline okay and you mentioned the reference to standards there so that this patch repair would also be a, a compliant repair yeah yeah absolutely there's a slightly different design process with those okay um but it is entirely uh, possible within the within the standard to do that yeah okay brilliant so what are the limitations of this type of repair? 
Well, in terms of limitations, the, there's two two um, key factors with any pressurized system, and uh, and that's going to be the pressure first of all, and and the temperature. In terms of pressure, technically, there's no limit. Um, in our pre-qualification testing, we've gone as high as 350 bar on thin wall defects and up to 200 bar on through wall defects, uh, which is pretty high pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but it's it's down to down to the design there. So in some cases, we see uh, with with uh, when we when we get the design, um, you might find that it tells you you need to do 50 layers of reinforcement, for example, on a very high pressure line. Uh, of course, that's not going to be practical. So no. there, is, there is limitations on pressure, although in a lot of cases, uh, it's it's perfectly possible um, to 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 do a repair. Um, but the the other, uh, I guess, limitation would be on the temperature side. Uh, so our system is designed to go up to up to one hundred and fifty degrees C. Okay. Anything from ambient conditions up to 150 degrees C. Okay. So for anyone interested, uh, we do have uh, comprehensive details on testing uh, for, for all of the Super App products that, that Tom's spoken about. So uh, so all you have to do is contact your local Bell's owner representative and, and we can give you further details on them. So for the next part of the podcast, uh, I would now like to bring in another special guest and podcast regular, uh, Mr. Osme O'Harris. Uh, now, most of you will know Osme from episode two of the podcast, where we discussed high temperature coatings and the problems and solutions associated with their application. Uh, so, uh, for the second time this this season, Osme, welcome to to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you guys doing? I'm actually liking this now. <laughs> good. Yeah, getting into it. Are you? Uh, how how are you finding your your newfound fame? Is is the office being flocked oh. with the podcast listeners? Yeah. I, I've been getting some texts like, uh, oh man, you did good. I like this. I like that. So it's pretty exciting. So yeah, Excellent. I don't know. It's, it's good. No, it's good. Good. Um, well, thank you very much for, for agreeing to, to, to come on and, and help us out again. Um, so to, to continue on from our discussion uh, on composite wrap systems, um, Osme is here to, to give us a a little more detailed expert insight into the standards that dictate the use of these composite wrap systems. Uh, and you are able to do this uh, as you are currently sitting on the ASME committee. Um, so these, these guys are, are the guys who are in charge of uh, of these, these standards. So um, I think the, the best way to, to, to kind of kick it off uh, would be for, could, could you just give us an introduction into your role as a member on the ASME committee, uh, what's the general purpose of the group and what your involvement is in the standards that, that we've touched on so far. Well, those are lots topics. of questions, so yeah. Lots um... of questions. <laughs> I thought I'd kick, kick it off with, uh, with with a complicated one. That's funny. So um, so the, uh, the ASME uh, PCC2 committee, which is the one that uh, I'm part of, uh, it was created in, um, I would say, around the early 2000s, if my memory serves me. Uh, and I think the first edition was released in 2004, and the latest one is in 2018, okay. which is the one that, that we have now. So the uh, committee was yeah. originally designed to develop 
new requirements and recommendations for the maintenance and inspection of pressure equipment after the equipment had been in service. So particularly we have articles 401, 402, and 403, which they deal with uh, non-metallic and bond repairs. Okay. So members, members with different backgrounds, they, they're part of this committee. And, and I think it's actually pretty good to have different backgrounds yeah. looking at, at problems that we face every day. So some of us represent the manufacturer, others represent the asset owner uh, or contracting companies. Um, and, and that's how, in my view, we, we, we could look at different problems from different angles yeah. and different perspectives. And the yeah. goal has always been to uh, generate a standard that is as easy to use as possible and mm -hmm. that provides asset owners with standardized solutions to their problems. So my role is contributing to this standard from the perspective of the manufacturer of the non-metallic repairs. So we mm -hmm. get together regularly, we discuss uh, some of the equations that we have in the standard, some of the procedures that we follow, some potential ways to modify some of the algorithms that we have now. Uh, I would say mostly because of three reasons. One, there may be more advanced ways to, let's say, inspect um, or just design a repair. Uh, number two, you could have new studies that show other effective ways to do things that we didn't do that way previously, right? And then we could just recalculate some of the mm -hmm. repairs or, or how to pre-qualify some of the solutions that we have, or just basically how to make sure the applications are, are less risky, you know, in a way. Uh, yeah. And third, because there's new testing, right, that allows us to refine some of the approaches that we previously had just rather than being extremely conservative, we could actually use yeah. different equations that give us a better outcome. Uh, so particularly now, we are in the process of harmonizing ISO 24817, which is a similar standard, and ASME okay. pieces it to Article 401 as much as we can. And, and although each one of them wants to keep its own identity, right, there are several yeah. sections that we could easily harmonize and we could adopt what's best from each one of the standards and sort of like merge them together into a better better standard. Uh, okay. In addition, we also help uh, some of the users, right, standard users to, um, when it comes to questions about how to interpret the standard, they might have questions as to what you mean here, what you mean there, how do I use this equation, how do I use that equation, can I do this, can I do that? So those are some mm -hmm. of the technical questions that we um, we could actually answer and, and better help the customers with those those kinds of questions. And we also try to be in touch with new technologies. We always try to be in charge of like, sort of like looking into new inspection techniques, which could potentially help and, and make a better and more robust standard uh, once we have new additions coming up. So those are, you know, and, and I would say in a summarized way, some of the uh, the things yeah. that we do and the reason why this standard was actually designed years, I'm sorry, created years and years ago. Great. Are there any other standards that cover these sort of non-metallic solutions? Yes. 
globally, ASME, PCC2, and ISO 24817 are the ones that are mostly used. But um, there, there's some other ones that we could actually have. I know there's ISO uh, 15649. Uh, there's DMVR. DMVGL actually has another one, which is more of like a recommendation uh, guidelines right. kind of okay. things. As that's DMVG, uh, DMVRPC 301. Okay. And we also, we also see that there's some asset owners, which they actually develop um, their own standards. Most of them yeah. are actually derived from either ASME, PC2, or ISA 2417, but they might actually yeah. have their own uh, documents. Like, for example, Chevron, they actually have uh, PIM SU 6085. I know Total has another similar one. PMEX also has another one, just to just cite a few. But, yeah. but the, the good thing is that they mostly look at what we have on ASME and PCC2 on ISO, and then they could just sometimes derive some of the things that we do, and they put their own spin yeah. to it. But it's okay. mostly based off both, both standards, yeah. So, so there's these two main ones and then slight variations and, and correct. iterations of which, possibly, is it? Correct, which at times we have to just review. So when there is a new revision of either ASME PCC2 or, or ISO yeah. 24817, most of these, uh, let's say specific standards, they also change based on yeah. um, the changes that we make in the, uh, on these two standards. Okay. So it's, it's a good thing to know about them, you know, because basically they contain all the uh, information that you need for yeah. non-metallic solutions, right? Okay. So um, I'm, I'm very impressed you can remember all these these uh, these figures as well. And uh, and <laughs> some of this, some of this actually, because you use them a lot, you get to remember them. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I just, I don't know. Sometimes I don't remember the numbers and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but sometimes I have to be like it's the MVGL CR I think it's three hundred one but yeah but you know it's uh, you know always, but, worth, uh, always worth a check on I'm always constantly yeah. on on my email or on on, on my uh, laptop just to double check especially when that's right that's with, right that's right clients. as long so as well, you remember ASME PCC two and ISO twenty four eight seventeen you're fine. They're the two main ones, yeah, yeah. So, uh, how have you seen um, ASME PCC two and ISO two four eight one seven? Not reading those. You're struggling uh, with that, huh? <laughs> Just checking. How, how have you seen these two main uh, main ones change since since their in early introduction? It's a good question. They have indeed changed. Um, again, as I said, ASME PCC two, I think around two thousand four. Was the first one that we had ISO twenty four eight seventeen. I think the first one was um, before the two thousand. I think it's two thousand one or two thousand two. I can't remember yeah. correctly. But even when it was just um, like a, like a TS technical specification, and then it became gradually uh, um, an actual standard. So okay. so as I explained before, procedures may actually change because. They have to align with new technologies or we have better ways to inspect the solutions and the equations are typically refined uh, to avoid conservatism. And this is, this is a good word because we always try these repairs to be pretty conservative. Like uh, yeah. we always try to make sure they're safe to use. So, so we always have you know, safety factors that we build into these equations to make sure that we always 
have a little bit of like uh, reassurance that's going to be okay. Uh, mm-hmm. But at times we have new ways to model uh, a problem. So we have better ways to use equations, right? And then instead of actually getting too, too, too conservative, we could actually refine those solutions, right? And, and, and make sure that, you know, so you have an idea. We don't have to go with five wraps being mm-hmm. extremely conservative where we might actually do the same thing with three, right? So it's, okay. again, it's a way to always find ways to better help customers with their problems. So pre-qualification procedures, they have also changed a little bit. We always try to refine them. Uh, we always try to find the way to optimize applications. Uh, we try to provide valuable solutions to asset owners. Um, additionally, some because some of these members, right, some of the committee members, yeah represent the asset owner and others represent contracting companies, right? We could find ways to uh, abide by regulations or, or established for both parties, right? For, for the mm-hmm. asset owner and also for the contracting companies without really compromising the adherence of these repairs to the standard. And, mm-hmm. and I believe that's, that's the benefit of actually, actually having different people from different uh, backgrounds representing different companies, right? Because you could always find ways to sort of like benefit in a way each one of them yeah. without really compromising the uh, validity of the equations of what we do on the standards. Yeah. Okay. I oh, know it sounds a good way of doing it, taking taking all stakeholders in, into account. Um, okay. Good. So, where do you see? these changing in the future what, what's the next stage for composite repair standards so um that's a good question um we are we're trying to continuously work with construction standards like there's a lot of different ones that we have within asme so we have asme b 31.1 b 31.3 uh, we have uh, BPV, we have external ones such as API, 620, 650. Again, just to cite a few of them. Uh, j- just to give you an example, um, in, in some cases we have, let's say, ASME PCC2 that actually references um, the, the use of non-metallic solutions uh, for different, uh, let's say, construction standards like, uh, for example, API 620 or API 650, right? But that doesn't mean that each one of those standards, API 620 or 650, references ASME PCC2 as a repair solution. So it's what we call an indirect reference. So ASME PCC2 says this this is a good solution for API 620 and 650, but that doesn't mean that 650 and 620 actually says that they say that ASME PCC2 is a good solution for them, right? So we're making a bit of progress though, but it is not as fast as we would actually like to do it. And this is mostly because for many years, solutions which do not involve metal have not been considered permanent, right? So, and, and I think that uh, engineers are, are, are now embracing more the the fact that metal unfortunately corrodes. <laughs> so yeah. there's, there's that, that's a reality, right? There's not a lot of that you could do about that. And now metallic solutions do yeah. not corrode, right? If you design them, if you apply them properly. So so I've seen that there's a lot of 
more users now that they embrace non-metallic solutions as a way to retrofit damaged equipment and yeah. and and then instead of like not really looking at what we could do they're actually looking at other avenues where they could just fix the problems uh yeah. interestingly customers may use may may use them like as temporary repairs temporary solutions for like five months or a year until they are replaced for more permanent solutions but the reality is that after one year or two years because they they do what they're supposed to do they become permanent repairs <laughs> because right. they prove to be effective right so in yeah, my view yeah. the next stage for all these standards is try to find a way to um get a direct reference of, of this ASME PCC2 or ISO 24817 standards in as yeah. many construction and post-construction codes and standards as possible. And again, as I said, we are we're working on it, but it's not as yeah. you know as fast as we would like. But it's something yeah. that we're definitely looking into, and I believe so, that's where we're heading. You know, okay. um, try to get that done as soon as possible. Yeah. So are there any standards that directly reference these solutions now? Yes. Yeah, so so we have, for example, ASME B31.4. 31.4 is mostly for um, transportation of liquids and slurries through pipelines, right? Yeah. So B31.4 references ASME PCC2 for uh, composite sleeves. That's that's the way they call it under certain yeah. conditions. Uh, ASME B31.4. 31.8, which actually covers transportation of um, gases, again, through um, piping systems. Uh, yeah. They also reference, in a way, ASME PCC2 as a temporary repair, right? So, so again, as I said, the way I see it is, yeah. and I think it's a positive thing, is that most regulatory agencies or standard-generating entities, right, are looking for solutions implemented by methods which have been proven by reliable engineering testing and analysis, right? And can permanently restore the serviceability of the damaged subtree. And that sounds very technical, but basically what we're saying is that if you have a solution that you have mathematical evidence that it actually works, then that yeah. solution is considered acceptable, right? So yeah. ASME okay. PCC2 part four as well as ISO 24817, they contain, they contain, I'm sorry, comprehensive mathematical procedures, which are based on reliable engineering and testing. Sometimes we could actually use finite element analysis to even complement the solutions and see how, how the model actually agrees with the testing. But these solutions could definitely restore the serviceability of uh, damage subtrees. And this is this is, in my view, the benefit of having these solutions. And is there any development on the horizon for, for this type of application onto different substrates? Uh, are you asking from a belt center perspective or? Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, so so testing for different substrates is not, it's not that complicated once you have a system that has been pre-qualified onto a specific material. So the only thing you have to do is it's you have to recognize what materials of constructions are, are, are the ones that suffer the most in the field. And, yeah. and, and then as of now, we have done this, and we know that it's mostly carbon steel and, and stainless steel. 
So we do have pre-qualification programs for those two specific substrates, right? But if we, if we, if we see that there are other materials of constructions that we should be looking into, uh, it's a very simple process. It's just testing, right? Once you have, yeah. again, tested one specific substrate, you could extrapolate into different ones, provided that you comply with, with some of the requirements that both standards actually contain. Excellent. Well, Osme, just just before we uh, we we bring the the episode to an end, is, is there anything else that that you think would be worth mentioning to to, to the listeners in terms of of your role and, and the standards? Uh, something interesting. Um, well, um, we're currently working on improving some of the sections that we have in the current standards. Right. Okay. Trying to make them easier to use trying yeah. to make them more in alignment with current technological developments and in-service inspection techniques, because that's very important. And yeah. we're also trying to improve training and supervision recommendations, because that's paramount. We're trying to uh, improve the way that um, installers and applicators are trained, right? Yeah. And, and hopefully once we have all this integrated and, and we have, again, a better standard that considers requirements from, again, an asset owner perspective, from yeah. a, a manufacturer's perspective, from a regulatory agency perspective, right? So once we have all this in place, I'm pretty sure that we should be able to ensure more successful applications, because that's the goal. Great. Osme, as always, it's been an, an absolute pleasure. Um, Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and and uh, and, and taking us through this. Um, I've, I've found it very very interesting. I'm sure sure the listeners have as well. Um, excuse the pun, but that about wraps it up for today. Um, I like that. <laughs> I, I knew you'd like that. That's why uh, that's why it's in there. Um, so for for everyone listening, we hope you you've enjoyed today's episode. Please, as always, do not forget to like or subscribe so you do not miss out on any future Belzona content. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other major podcast platforms. For information on anything that we've discussed today uh, or for any information on any Belzona solutions or services, please visit our website, www.belzona.com. Thank you very much to uh, Thomas Martin, who joined us at the, the start of the episode. And of course, uh, Mr. Osme Harris for, for, for joining us uh, uh, now. Um, until next time, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>